To all supernatural scrutineers and paranormal postulants, I bid you welcome. You are about to listen to the Occultaria of Albion audio tales. What is the Occultaria of Albion, you inquire? Is it a hauntological exploration of strange phenomena? Is it a world where the abnormal and arcane exist in abundance? The answer to these questions is yes and yes. Explore our publications and other material by going to occultariaofalbion.co.uk Now, lie back and relax, if you can. Danger. Deep water. The sky had been full of thick grey rain since just north of Manchester, and had remained that way right on into Cumbria, and showed no sign of dissipating. Matilda had, at last, pulled off the bee something or other. She was due to meet Kate at a general store and cafe, not far from where they were going to be staying for the next three days. Matilda checked her watch, then looked at the photo she'd tacked to the dashboard of her, Kate and Andrea. Matilda pulled her hood up and opened the car door. She dashed toward the entrance of the outpost, sidestepping the waterlogged potholes in the car park. The outpost was appropriately named. Sat on a twisting black ribbon of road surrounded by moorland and high hills half hidden in the mizzle. The place certainly felt like it might be the last settlement for many miles. The signage only confirmed it. Last stop for bait. Last stop for petrol. Last stop for food. Inside it was warm and dry, with only a couple of giddy fishermen talking loudly and excitedly about the different tubs of bait before them. Matilda went into the small cafe. It was empty, and she tucked herself into the corner at a yellow formica top table and ordered a coffee. A local radio station was playing just loud enough to smother the chatter of the fishermen, still talking about their bait options. After five minutes they left, and a young woman in a long raincoat came in. She saw Matilda and marched over. Great fucking weather, she said, splashing raindrops onto the table and into Matilda's drink. It's always like this up here, Kate, Matilda told her friend. Well. Andrea might have made us endure three days in a tent, Kate said, taking a seat across from Matilda. But this time, she went on, giving an excited drum roll on the tabletop, we have an actual roof over our heads and an actual toilet that flushes. The drum roll reached its crescendo and an actual fucking hot tub. Matilda couldn't help but roll her eyes. We're here to work. She knew as she said it, she sounded just like her mother, which only annoyed her more. Have you been in the hot tub since you got there? I only arrived yesterday afternoon, she protested. But I might have tried it out, she smiled. This place is perfect though, 
Kate reassured her friend. There's a jetty onto the lake and a boat with an outboard and you should see the garage space. It's perfect for our equipment. I wasn't going to turn this place down simply because it happens to have a hot tub and a sauna. There's a sauna too? Kate grinned. There's a sauna too, she confirmed. As soon as I saw it online, I knew I had to book it. Matilda smiled but still shook her head. I can imagine Andrea's reaction. I know, Kate said. But this is it. I can feel it. We're going to prove that Andrea was right and finish what she started. A woman in an apron and with a notepad in her hand suddenly appeared next to them. She pulled a pen from behind her ear. Ready to order? She asked Kate half-heartedly. Before Kate could answer, the waitress proffered further information. Just, we're getting ready to close. This time of year it's shorter hours and now with that, she gestured toward the TV up in the corner. It was silently playing a local news report, as if there wasn't already enough to be fretting about. Both Kate and Matilda looked confused. It was on the wireless earlier, she explained. A prisoner's escaped from Todborough, doing time for armed robbery. A dangerous individual not to be approached, they've said. There's no bloody chance of me doing anything daft like approaching him. I'll be running in the other direction. You need to be on your guard, she said, eyeing them both. Is this prison far from here? Kate asked. Todborough? The waitress said with a look of dismay. No, not bloody far at all. Kate and Matilda thanked her and decided to get on their way. A few minutes later, the two women were back in the outpost car park, stood next to Kate's transit van. Although the sky was still a deep grey, it had, surprisingly, stopped raining. So, you follow me onto the cabin, Kate told Matilda. It's about another 30 minutes. Just stay close, otherwise you'll miss the turning. Is there any phone signal out there? Matilda asked. Not so far. Are you worried? Matilda searched Kate's face. You mean about that escaped prisoner? No, I mean about what we're doing. It's the right thing, isn't it? We couldn't just do nothing. Kate took hold of Matilda's hand. We both know what this meant to Andrea. The two friends looked at one another. It's been a tough year, Kate went on, but almost from the moment I heard she was gone, I knew that we were going to do this. We were going to the lake and we were going to prove that she was onto something. There's no one else, Matty, who can do this for Andrea. Matilda nodded and took a deep breath. I think I'm ready for that hot tub, she smiled. Both women got into their cars and drove away from the outpost. The road wound on, bounded by stone walls that looked like they were slowly warping under the weight of time and rain and moss. The unceasing twirl of tarmac began to turn downwards, diminishing its altitude like a crow idly twisting toward the ground. After some minutes the shore of Skellwater could be spotted. Its surface was a shimmering echo of the ashen sky and seemed both gentle and hostile all at once. Matilda and Kate had been to Skellwater a couple of times in years past, but then they always camped on the other side of the lake. Neither of them had been to this further bank before, with its sentinel of trees gathered along Skellwater's muddy edge. It was Andrea who had always taken charge when it came to these expeditions. Her expeditions. Kate and Matilda had always been the willing assistants. Finding the mysterious cryptid fish, known as the Archistrian Scod, had become the driving force of Andrea's life. Although she was a lecturer in zoology, her passion had increasingly become cryptozoology. 
It was an interest that all three of them had shared as students together. Back then it was Kate who had formed the Cryptid Society at university. Their meetings consisted of the three of them, along with a philosophy student called Alphonse, getting drunk in the student union and talking about Bigfoot, the Magpie Man and Chupacabra. Since those days, it was Andrea who had gone on to become the real master of mythic monsters, something which her colleagues at university found inscrutable at best and ridiculous at worst. Their disapproval never put her off though, and in time she joined the British Cryptozoology Institute as one of its most active and dedicated members. For the last four or five years, all her spare time had been devoted to proving the existence of the Archistrian Scod. As the rain began to start once again, Kate, leading the way in her van, made a signal that she was turning off the road. Matilda followed suit and, in a moment, both vehicles were trundling along a narrow gravel track surrounded by ferns on both sides. A sharp bend opened out into a clearing where there sat a single-storey wooden chalet clad in cedar and with a sturdy stone chimney pointing dauntlessly from the apex roof. Matilda loved the place as soon as she saw it. Let's get your things unloaded, then I'll give you the tour, Kate told Matilda as she got out of her van. Neither of them were great cooks, and so the supplies for the three-day enterprise consisted mainly of frozen pizzas and bottles of wine. They sat and ate at the cabin's large kitchen table, listening to a local radio station for the next day's weather report. Most of the talk was about the escaped prisoner. There were more details now. His name was Harry Glizzard. He was being taken to a medical appointment when he attacked and seriously injured his prison guard chaperone. Glizzard made his escape on foot and disappeared onto the fells. He was a dangerous individual. Police had set up checkpoints on various routes out of Cumbria and the transport police were doing the same at railway stations. Glizzard was thought to have connections in Manchester and it was believed that he would try and make his way there. Members of the public were being advised to keep their doors and outbuildings secure and not to approach anyone of a suspicious nature. The prisoner had the distinguishing feature of a large scar across his left eye. Kate opened another bottle and clicked the radio off. Did you know, on that last trip Andrea made here, she finally met Morris Garden. It was at a pub in Penrith. Matilda shook her head. I never knew. Did she tell him about her new theory? She did. Kate looked out at the large window, toward the edge of the lake, invisible in the darkness. Andrea was convinced that Garden would hate her and her theory. He had basically devoted his entire life to finding the Scod. His research was definitive and now Andrea was about to tell him that he'd been wrong all that time and the Archistrian Scod wasn't what he thought it was. Did you know they were meeting? Kate moved from the window and sat next to her friend on the large sofa. Andrea only told me afterward. She was so happy and excited and tearful all at once. Garden loved her theory. He got so carried away, she said, that he thumped the table with his walking stick and spilled both their drinks. Andrea couldn't believe it. She said it felt like the only approval that had ever really mattered to her. Morris Garden agreed with her that the Scod wasn't just a mutated fish, but something else, some sort of amphibian or reptile. That's why he never found it. He was focusing on the wrong thing and looking in the wrong place. Matilda held the wine glass partway to her lips, her mind in a trance. She thought about Morris Garden, 
the years he had spent looking for a monster fish that, so it would seem, probably wasn't a fish at all. How must it feel if your life's work was spent looking left when you should have been looking right, or digging here when you should have been digging there? It made Matilda think about Andrea again and all her years of work. She was insightful, caring and so much fun to be with. Then cancer just took her away, just as she was on the verge of realising her sole ambition. Matilda! Kate brought her back to the cabin. Matilda jumped, then took a big gulp of wine. Oh, I was just thinking how sad this whole situation is. There's something else, Kate went on. I wasn't sure if I should mention it. I didn't think it would make any difference. Difference to what? To what we're doing? Matilda waited and gestured for a friend to continue. Morris Garden came to see me, Kate told her. It wasn't long after Andrea's funeral. He didn't even know she'd been ill, but he'd found out that Andrea had left a lot of her research with me. He asked if he could look at it. Matilda put her glass down. So, what did you do? I let him look, of course. And what happened? Kate shrugged. He cried. We both cried. He told me that Andrea had to be right. Either the Scud had never been a Scud in the first place, or maybe it had been, but for whatever reason the thing had mutated, evolved somehow into either something reptilian or amphibian. Andrea was right, but without any actual evidence of the creature, we'd never know. Her life's work, Matilda whispered. Yes, and Morris's as well, Kate said solemnly. There's no one else who can do this, Matty, she said, looking at her friend. Morris is an old man, and Andrea is dead. From what Morris told me, no one else is interested, or if they are, they likely have no intention of recognising the work of Andrea in any discovery. If she was right, and we find evidence for whatever that thing is, Kate looked to the darkness beyond the windows, then it would be huge. You understand that, don't you? Matilda nodded silently. Yesterday, Kate went on, before you arrived, I set up some baited traps around the trees and along the bank as well as in the water, and this time I've added a special ingredient. I'm guessing it isn't sweet corn, Matilda joked. Morris gave me something. Kate went to the kitchen and into the utility room. She returned with a large plastic tub. He says it will help to attract the creature. The tub was a forbidding orange colour, as if designed for use in the chemicals industry rather than home baking. Matilda could see the dried crusts of something yellow on the sides of it and suddenly began to feel like she'd had a little too much wine. The tub had an awful smell that only got worse as soon as Kate clicked the lid off and showed Matilda the contents. It was a thick-looking paste, greenish-brown in colour and peppered with chunks of something that was grey and dull like granite. I don't know what's in it, Kate said in answer to the look on Matilda's face, but it's worth a try. Matilda nodded. Now that Andrew is gone, Morris Garden is the last remaining expert on the Archistrian Scud, or whatever the thing turns out to be. He certainly thinks this stuff will attract it anyway, Kate said, putting the lid back on. Just then there was a rattling noise followed by a thud at the back door. Both women froze and looked at each other. They waited for a moment for the sound to come again, but there was nothing. They got up and went to investigate, neither of them saying a word. The door was shut, but the window next to it was ajar and creaked a little with the breeze. Did you lock the door? Matilda asked. 
No, Kate said sheepishly, stepping out onto the back porch. I don't think I locked the van either. She looked around, but there was nothing, only the dark and the sound of the breeze drifting through vegetation. Kate could just about make out the edge of the water as it lapped against the jetty a few metres from the cabin. Somewhere in the distant woods there came an animalistic bellow. <coughs> Matilda stood next to her friend. Just a fox, she said hesitantly. Something, Kate responded, turning back to look at the door handle. Everything appeared normal. We'll check the traps first thing. For now, let's just make sure all the windows are secure and turn in for the night. Matilda nodded. The man was dead. Harry Glizzard hadn't wanted to kill him, but what did that matter now? The man was dead because he didn't stay home in the dry and the warm like a normal person would be doing. He was dead all because he had gone night fishing. As if fishing in daylight wasn't tedious enough, Harry thought. Some people choose to go out into the cold and the dark to do it. Harry looked down at him and sighed. Well, that's where doing something stupid like that gets you. Bloody idiot, Harry muttered as he began to tug the dead man's boots off. Harry had no choice. As soon as the fisherman appeared from out of the ferns and caught Harry in the beam of his head torch, seeing his prison garb with HMP Todra stitch across his chest, that was it. The two men looked at one another and both saw fear written on the other's face. The fisherman dropped his box of fishing paraphernalia, turned and ran. Harry went after him, picked up the discarded box and slammed it down on the man's head. There was blood and a blood-curdling yelp to go along with it. The man fell and twitched for a moment, but then he was dead. Surrounded by different coloured floats, like some strange extraterrestrial confetti, Harry just gazed down at him. It took some time to get his clothes off. As Harry put them on, they were still warm from the fisherman's body heat. He tried not to think too hard about this, and instead focused on the improvement it made from his prison attire. The man had been wearing a dark green padded overall type of affair with plenty of pockets. The boots didn't fit too badly either, a size too large, but that was better than being too small. Harry could have taken the dead man's thick woolen socks too, but just couldn't face the idea of putting them on and having to touch the feet of a corpse to do so. There was a wallet. The man's name was Stephen Pickering. Harry didn't make too much effort to hide the body. He just dragged it into an area of thick vegetation and made sure it was well covered by the greenery. He calculated that by the time Stephen Pickering was discovered, he would be long gone. Next, he went through the rest of Stephen's things. In the fishing box was a rather large, rather sharp pocket knife, which would be useful. There was the head torch. It still worked. Harry found a set of car keys on a fish-shaped fob. He walked a little way in the direction Stephen had come from and found there was a rough farm track with an old silver Volvo parked over the verge. He tried the door with the key and it worked. Perfect, Harry thought. When the time came, he'd make his exit looking just like someone who'd been night fishing. From the overalls he now wore, he'd smell like it too. On the Volvo's passenger seat was a lunchbox of ham sandwiches, which he quickly devoured. There was no other good place to move the car, so he left it where it was and headed back into the undergrowth. 
He went down to the lake's edge with the head torch to light his way. There was a weather-beaten sign with the words, Danger, Deep Water, just about visible over the moss. Harry flung the fishing box along with Stephen Pickering's wallet into Skellwater. Stephen Pickering hadn't deserved to die. Not the way it happened, anyway. Harry reflected that fishing, particularly at night, wasn't such an absurd thing to do. People often did it for the solitude, and that was something he could understand. Harry had been the middle child of seven growing up, all of them stuffed into a two-bedroom rat trap. Back then, although he hadn't realised it, solitude was the thing he was desperate for. Maybe things would have turned out differently if he'd found some. There was solitude in prison, of course, but not the right kind. It was more of a withdrawal into oneself as a form of armour. Todborough had given him five years of it, and for a good chunk of that time, he'd focused his mind on getting out. Harry chuckled at the sign. It no longer mattered to him how deep the water was, or anything else. He was up to his neck in it. All he had to do now was to keep swimming, swim until his task was complete. It was still a long way to Panama and freedom. Harry knew he was close to the spot now, so after a moment of gazing at the bubbles brought to the surface of the water by Stephen Pickering's stuff, he turned and began walking along the water's edge. Ahead, in the distance, he could make out the shadowy form of a building. It had been nearly six years since he had stashed the money. 250 grand in a steel ammo box buried on the plot of a ruined cottage. The place must have been derelict for around 200 years, gradually disintegrating in a land that seemed designed for deterioration. From the undergrowth, Harry looked at the place. As soon as he saw it, he felt angry and sick. The cottage was gone, and in its place stood a smart-looking cabin of glass and wood. It was a classy monument to six lost years. He shook himself and refocused. It looked as if the cabin had been constructed on the footprint of the old cottage. He'd buried the ammo box a little way in front of it. Then it was just wild and rambling ground, but now it was a lawn with a path that ran down to a small jetty. He'd buried it deep. Not quite grave deep, but enough that it would not be easily disturbed. Harry reasoned that if construction workers had discovered a British Army ammo box stuffed with a quarter of a million pounds, it would have been a story to make the news. Nothing like that had happened, and it was just the sort of thing that all the lags in Todborough would have talked about for months if it had. Harry felt his hope return. His money would still be there. It had to be. He studied the scene more closely. He could make out at least one car parked to the side of the cabin, and from somewhere within there was a light on. The place was definitely occupied, and whoever was living there was unlikely to appreciate a stranger appearing and digging a large hole on their well-kept lawn. He sat down on the ground and thought. There was no choice but to deal with the occupants of the cabin as cleanly as possible. He would wait until dawn and catch them unawares. He didn't fancy breaking into the place in the complete dark with only a cracked head torch for illumination. Better to wait until there was enough light to navigate properly. Harry felt exhaustion creeping into his brain anyway. A couple of hours rest wouldn't do any harm. He began to accept the situation and made the mental adjustment. Just as some of the tension in his muscles began to dissipate, a few feet away, something moved in the water. 
Harry only caught a blurred shape from the corner of his eye, but the water sploshed where it had been disturbed. The surface was agitated again, and then something appeared on the bank. It had a cautiousness about its movement as it slinked out of the water. Harry was uncertain what he was seeing. At first he thought it might have been a water rat, or perhaps a weasel or stoat, but it had no fur on its body and it was far too big. The thing gradually revealed more of its form. It pulled itself from the water with two short front legs. He'd had a friend who'd kept iguanas, and that's what the limbs reminded Harry of, chunky and jointed and with large slender claws. Its head was long and flat like an alligator, though the skin was smooth and scaled like a fish. Along its back was a long dorsal fin, topped by a row of bony-looking spikes. When it was entirely out of the water, Harry couldn't believe it. From head to tail it must have been around six feet in length. Its rear legs appeared to be a pair of smooth, leathery paddles, with tiny teeth-like claws on the end. Harry did not move. He couldn't tell if it had seen him or not. The thing breathed slowly and stared straight ahead. Its mouth opened to reveal hundreds of sharp teeth, no bigger than the thorns of a rosebush. It hissed and moved its head as if looking about. Two yellow eyes did not blink. The thing inched toward him in a sinuous and supple movement. Harry gripped his knife tighter. The creature let out a hiss as if in warning, then turned and meandered away into the foliage. Harry was still for some time. He waited and listened for any noise or movement, but the animal did not return. Whatever the thing was, he had never seen anything like it before and never wanted to see it again. Even more, he determined, after tonight, he was never going to set foot in Cumbria ever again. It was Caribbean beaches for him, thousands of miles from this bleak, primeval turd of land. He decided to go closer to the cabin and wait for the dawn to break. Let us pause a moment and hear some details about another haunted podcast that you might enjoy. Dust is supposed to be made up of dead people's skin, said Rachel, running a finger across the dusty window ledge. I wonder what percentage of your mum I have on my finger right now. I found Teddy sitting near the top of the stairs. He was staring down at the man, and the man was staring back at him. Dad, he whispered, is that man dead? Of course not, Teddy. Why would you say that? He looks like a zombie. No such things as zombies, Teddy. I could hear the lack of confidence in my own voice. I see shadows, figures surrounding the bed. They watch as he rises up. His arms are like the branches of a tree. He raises one arm over me. I feel my heart stop and then start again, like he's pulling on the strings and making it play. Saliva drips from his razor teeth. I can't scream. I'm powerless. I'm going to be killed by a nightmare. And I'll never wake up again. to a new season of the new Ghost Stories podcast, where each month we uncover real-life cases of ghosts, hauntings, and horror. Are these genuine experiences of the supernatural, or simply lives spiralling out of control in a world gone mad? New episodes land on the 15th of every month. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Kate opened her eyes. It felt like she hadn't really slept, not in any restful, deep way. She kept thinking about Morris Garden and the way he had squeezed her hand before he'd given her the tub of strange paste. Do be careful, he had said. Whatever that thing is, it is a carnivorous killer. Andrea understood that. Over the years, several people have gone missing after a swim in Skell water. I'd hate for the same thing to happen to you. She dressed quickly. When Kate got to the kitchen, she was surprised to see Matilda was up, sat at the table drinking a mug of coffee. Didn't sleep too well, she told Kate. I'm annoyed because the bed was so comfy. Kate poured herself a coffee and sat down. They decided they would check the traps nearest to the house first, then they would go a little further and retrieve the memory cards from the cameras that Kate had set up the day before. They pulled their boots on and stepped out onto the porch. The sky was milky and the breeze had dropped. The rain too had not returned. There's a baited trap down by the lake, Kate told Matilda. Let's go and take a look at that one first. The two women walked the pathway across the lawn together and toward the jetty. Hang on, Kate said as they got closer. Look! The rectangular steel cage that had been placed near the shore had been battered and twisted and the paste that was inside was all but gone. Kate crouched down to examine it, not quite believing what was in front of her. Matilda walked onto the jetty and stopped. Kate, you need to see this too. On the boards of the pier were fresh scratch marks, claw-like, but of a pattern that Matilda had never seen before. Kate was equally baffled. This has to be our scud. Isn't it? Matilda said, tracing her finger along the deep mark in the wood. Yes, but Kate didn't finish her sentence. There was a noise from behind and they both turned to see a man stood on the lawn. Hello. The man took a hand from his overall pocket and waved at them both. I was hoping you might be able to help me. He waited, the smile still on his face. What is it? Matilda asked stiffly. I've been night fishing, he told them. Now this morning my car won't start and I can't get any signal on my phone. I was wondering if I could use your landline. Kate and Matilda looked at one another. It was the escaped prisoner, Glizzard. It had to be him. There was a dark red scar across his left eye. I'm sorry to disturb you, Glizzard added, filling the silence. It's fine, Kate said, stepping forward. She turned back to Matilda with a look in her eye. Why don't you finish putting the stuff in the car, she said to her friend, while I take him to the phone. Matilda didn't know how to respond. It's fine, Kate told her again. I'd rather we all stay together. Glizzard took his knife out and stepped toward the two women. I need you to do as I say, and this will all be over very soon. He gestured with the blade of the knife for them to get off the jetty. Kate and Matilda took each other's hand and did as Glizzard commanded. As Kate stepped off the jetty, Glizzard lunged forward and stuck the knife into her shoulder. She fell to her knees and cried out. I'm not fucking around, he told them, wiping the blade on his overalls. Understand, if I tell you to do something, you do it, otherwise there'll be pain. Neither of you needs to get clever. You wanker, Matilda said as she took hold of her friend and pulled Kate back to her feet. We know who you are, she told him. It's been all over the news. It's only a matter of time before the police find you. Shut up and walk, 
he told them. What is it you want? Kate managed to ask through the pain and adrenaline. You can take a car and all the cash we have. I don't need anything from you, Glizzard said, shoving them forward. They began to stumble their way up the path toward the cabin. Behind them came a splashing noise from the lake. All three turned round to see a bizarre creature pulling itself from the water. Jesus Christ, Glizzard exclaimed. The fucking thing's come back. In the daylight, it looked even more forbidding. Its yellow eyes were cold and empty and yet possessed a spirit that seemed as ancient as it was savage. The mouth opened and discharged a dreadful hiss. Once clear of the water, it began to move at pace, almost skipping over the grass. Harry shoved past the two women and began to run for the cabin. It's the scud, Matilda cried. Andrea was right. Kate could only manage a breathless yes as Matilda began tugging her along. She tried to move faster, but the wound in her shoulder had sapped her energy. She stumbled and fell. Just go, she screamed, pushing her friend forward. The scud had travelled 20 feet in only a few seconds and went for the fallen body of Kate. A claw stabbed into the flesh and bone of her leg. The pain overwhelmed her. Then the thigh on her other leg was punctured by a second claw. The scud was on top of her, with its maw of teeth beginning to lacerate her neck with a precise ferocity. Once on the porch, Matilda looked back to see her friend being torn apart by the creature. Even before she could scream, Glizzard grabbed hold of her and pulled her into the cabin. Do you have a gun? he asked. Matilda looked at him blankly, her mind still in shock at what she had seen. Is there a gun here? Glizzard repeated, grabbing hold of her. Matilda shook her head. We're renting this place, she told him. We don't have a gun. He went to the window and saw the creature making its way toward the cabin. What the hell is that thing? It's an Archistrian scud, Matilda told him. A cryptid. No one really believed it existed. She sat down on a chair, feeling like she was going to throw up. You mean like Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster? Glizzard turned back to his captive. That's why we were here, Matilda said, not looking at him. To prove it existed. To find real evidence. Well, congratulations, Glizzard sneered. There was a thudding and a hissing noise as the scud began to prod at the door and scratch at the wooden boards. Look, there are two cars, Matilda told him. We can take one each and get out of here. I won't say anything. I don't care where you go. He turned back to Matilda and waved his knife at her. I'm not leaving and neither are you. The hissing outside got louder. So, you must be some sort of an expert on this thing, he asked. Expert? Matilda looked at Glizzard and shrugged. No one has ever seen that damn thing until today. What were you doing down by the jetty? Grabbed hold of her. You were checking a trap, weren't you? Matilda nodded. What were you using for bait? She suddenly remembered the large tub of paste was still in the cabin. I, I don't know what it was, she told him. Where is it? He demanded. Matilda showed him the large orange tub and the contents inside. It smelt more terrible than the night before. Glizzard took the power cable on the kettle and tied Matilda's feet together, then sat her down in a chair. Don't worry, he told her. I've decided I will let you go. He picked up the orange tub of paste and poured it over Matilda. It came out in thick globs. Rub it in, he demanded. Matilda realised what was about to happen. Please, she begged, please don't do this. Just rub that paste in, otherwise I'll just kill you now. Matilda did as he told her, all the while the hissing and banging from the porch getting more insistent and more demented. 
When Glizzard was satisfied, he told her to stop and untied her feet. He grabbed her by the arm and took her to the back door. You've seen how fast that thing can move, so if I were you, I wouldn't look back. Don't do this. Matilda was shaking all over and felt sick from the scent of the pace she had covered herself in. Run, Glizzard told her and pushed her out of the door, quickly locking it behind her. Matilda stumbled from the porch and began to stagger to the lawn. She did look back, but only so she could glimpse Kate's body on the ground. It was there, but nothing more than a lump turning the grass around it a dark red colour. There was a hissing noise, and the scud appeared from the other side of the cabin. It seemed able to smell the bait because it paused a moment, sniffing the air. Then it started charging toward Matilda. She turned and began to flee, running as hard as she could toward the trees by the edge of Skellwater. Harry watched her disappear with the creature giving chase behind. He mentally congratulated himself on his idea but knew his mission was not yet complete. There was no telling how long it would be gone so he had to move fast. In the garage he found a shovel and got to work in digging a hole. Before he started though he dragged the body of the other woman onto the jetty, pouring the last of the paste onto her mangled form. He hoped that if the monster returned it would be drawn to the corpse and away from him. It took nearly two hours of constant maniacal digging for Harry to find the ammo box, but it was there, and he nearly cried when he opened it and saw the bundles of cash wrapped inside the plastic bag, just as he had left it six years before. He grabbed the box and went back into the cabin, deciding he would use one of the vehicles parked outside. It did not take him long to find the keys, and he opted to use the transit van. With no sign of the scud, he dashed out to it, got in and dumped the ammo box on the seat next to him, then started the engine. Before driving away, he waited a moment and took several deep breaths. He'd done it, he thought. Escaped prison, made it across moorland, killed a fisherman, then had to deal with the gentrification of his stash site and finally, to top it all off, he'd managed to survive the appearance of a killer crocodile equivalent to the Loch Ness Monster He laughed and began to imagine himself laying on a Panamanian beach, writing his memoirs. The stories he had to tell, no one would believe. It was all just too insane. He put the van in gear and pulled away up the narrow track. At the end of it, he stopped and checked the junction. There were no other cars on the road. That was when he heard it, a low hissing noise. Harry's eyes moved to the rearview mirror and looked. There was the creature in the back of the van, its mouth agape and its teeth covered in blood. Harry couldn't believe it. His hand moved quickly toward the door handle, but it just wasn't quick enough. The scud had already lurched forward and slashed its claws across the driver's neck. by Richard Daniels and was a Pylon Phaser production. For more information go to occulteriaofalbion.co.uk As Yet Unexplained podcast written, performed, scored and produced by Wesley Smith.
we will be looking at some of the most famous and mysterious tales of the strange, paranormal, and unexplained. If you are interested in the paranormal, then this podcast is for you. This show will delve into cases of UFOs, hauntings, folklore, murder, ghosts, historical mysteries, and things that simply cannot be explained. Please consider liking, subscribing, sharing, and even writing a review on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. As yet, unexplained.